All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming back. And uh, I want to say thanks so much for all the positive feedback I've gotten for the last one. It's really an encouragement. It's the first time I've really taught anything. So it definitely helps to get good feedback and encouragement. And, um, I hope you brought with the notes that we had last week. We're going to use those again. However, unfortunately, I didn't get all of the material to Christy, who printed them. So uh, we're not going to have a lot of the fallacies we're going to talk about today. So you'll have to just use the back of your notes. Use the back of the page to take notes. We'll have them all again next week, though. And last week, we went through some red herring fallacies and went through a first subset of red herring, which was our ad hominem fallacies, attacking a person, making an argument rather than an argument itself. This week we're going to pick up, finish off the red herring with association fallacies, and then we're going to talk about uh, false assumptions. We have a little bit more time. We're going to go through about the same number of fallacies this week that we did last week, but I'm not introducing it like I was last week, so we're going to have a little bit more time to get through them. Uh, feel free to participate, ask questions, give examples, uh, whatever you, th you think that will help the discussion. Uh, it will help keep our time. So the first of our uh, association fallacies, we're going to talk about guilt by association. You probably all heard of this. It's, it's a common thing. What happens is you take two different things that are unrelated and kind of compare them as if they are related in order to make the one, that, the one thing look bad. So it's, it's an effective political tactic. We saw that back in the 60s with McCarthyism. We see that now with President Obama. If you disagree with Obama, then you're, you're associated with racists. And we see that also in theology. And I think Bob's going to have a lot of good examples of this. We have amillennialism is an eschatological view that I don't hold to. But to dismiss it because Roman Catholics do hold to it would be a, a guilt by association fallacy. And then, of course, the Pharisees committed this fallacy when uh, they pointed out that Jesus dined with sinners. Yeah, you know, uh, well, just only because Andy and I were talking about this last night, and what's interesting about this fallacy is it forces all of us, we all, I think, in this room are pretty much probably premillennial, but because Andy's showing us this guilt of association, what it forces us to do is if we're going to deal with amillennialism, we don't deal with it by just saying, well, it can't be true because the Roman Catholics hold to it. It forces us to deal with the scriptural text. Right. And so that's what Andy's trying to show us is how should we argue about the issue at hand? If we're going to argue about amillennialism, the issue at hand is the scriptures. Right. And so it forces us when we look at these fallacies to deal with the real issue. And I think that's what's so helpful about a lot of these informal right. fallacies. And sometimes it's helpful to show counterexamples. And a perfect counterexample for this would be the Trinity. The Roman Catholicism holds to the Trinity. We don't dismiss that because they hold to it. And we can't dismiss amillennialism just because they hold to it. Any questions or comments on guilt by association? Oftentimes, Andy, this, uh, this very irrational argument, but it's a very popular one. People tend to want to associate anything, a movement, a certain gender of people, a certain whatever, 
and decide that's all bad. And you just made one decision. You don't have to make 20 decisions or 10 right. decisions. You don't even have to study and you don't have to get an education. All you have to do is say, dismissed all of this, whatever it might be yeah. and whatever associated with it. Last week you brought up deconstructionism. I think uh, or Mike, yeah, Mike uh, brought up de deconstructionism. There's always and, some meaning that somebody else can d discern, but I was just simply the reader determining the meaning. I, I get this one all the time, and it doesn't mm -hmm. even make sense, but I get nasty emails saying, I won't listen to anything you say because you're a tulip Calvinist. <laughs> so it used to really bother me to say, mm -hmm. okay, you, here's the link to the website. Here's all the hundreds of sermons I preach. You mm -hmm. tell me where I preach tulip. Right. Well, they're just wanting to stir up dust and well, here's another one. You're a tulip Calvinist, and Calvin was bad. Calvin had Severus executed. All right. <laughs> Where do you go with that? Right. Well, it doesn't cost anything to blow off a bunch of steam and not study and not get an education mm -hmm. and not step up to the plate yourself and teach something. And I decided some years ago what's most important to me is to teach the truth to the body of Christ and we have purposely not associated with some creed from church history not that they're bad mm -hmm. but continue to teach verse by verse and try to find the truth now Eric it gets around been, this fallacy then they can't get accused of it yeah it, it just isn't right but it, I finally just go this person is not worth responding to yeah uh, this is schoolyard logic they haven't gotten anywhere I don't know how mm -hmm. old they are but uh, we've been citing Luther, and we just did, didn't we? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, but when we get to where we disagree with Luther, we cite him there and tell him why we disagree. We need to be able to learn rather than just be angry and prejudiced. Right. You know, and our hope for this entire congregation is that we have a love for the truth and we want to learn. Yep. It would be a lot easier for the elders to just say, okay, we're going to sign on to this creed there. Go look at the creed if you want to know what we believe. Yeah. It's a lot harder to actually study and understand the key. your own theology and understand the yeah. passages it's based on and continue to do that. That's harder, but it's a lot, far more rewarding. Yeah, and that's the key is to always look at the whatever you're trying to refute or whatever somebody's trying to refute for you, look at the point that's being made. That's, that's the key throughout all of these fallacies. You always got to look at the point being made and not some sidetrack thing like, well, who they associate with in this case. Or, is it Paul? It just seems to me one's using emotion to block out reason. Yeah. Yeah. There's oh, a yeah. Lot and, and it's amazing how angry some people get. They literally shake with adrenaline if you see them in person. Yeah. They're so angry about... I don't know what, there's some emotional association going on there. Maybe some experience they had with somebody they didn't like or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, it's understandable. We're humans. We have emotions. But how much better at teaching is if we can divorce all of our prejudices and emotions, best we can, and get down to the truth and the facts and help people understand the gospel. That's the, the goal that we have. Yep. Well. Kind of the opposite of a guilt by association would be a transfer fallacy. And that's where you're trying to project a, a good quality from one thing to another when the two things aren't necessarily related. 
And this one's really common in advertising. You see this all the time. In fact, I've got a few examples here that we'll see in advertising. On the left there, you've got the Marlboro Man <laughs> projecting an image you know, of a cowboy. It's rugged. He's calm. He's masculine. He's independent. And if you smoke Marlboro cigarettes, maybe you'll be like him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the upper right there is, a, is an, an ad for Diet Coke. And, uh, you know, this guy looks like a childhood father. It says Diet Coke for 30 years. Uh, he conjures up in images of your childhood father. It looks like he's picking up a bike or mowing a lawn or something there. And um, so maybe if you, if you drink Diet Coke, you'll have those same kind of. Uh, nostalgic feelings you had uh, when you were younger with your father. And then, of course, down on the bottom, we've got presidential candidate standing in front of an American flag displaying patriotism, uh, the best candidate for America. Uh, these, are also, uh, these are all, in their own way, different kinds of transfer fallacies. And then we have a failed example of transfer. <laughs> Things you're going to see. Eric likes this one. <laughs> for this, this, Michael Dukakis ran for president in 1988 against George Bush. Uh, kind of a little before my time. I was about 11 years old at the time. But <laughs> uh, so for those of you who are younger than me, uh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, September 13, 1988, Dukakis visited the General Dynamics land system plant in Sterling Heights, Michigan, to take part in a photo op in an M1 Abrams tank. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Ma Margaret Thatcher, had been photographed in a similar situation in 1986, riding in a Challenger tank while wearing a scarf. Compared to Dukakis's results, Thatcher, Thatcher's picture was successful and helped her re-election prospects. Footage of Dukakis was used in television ads by the Bush campaign as evidence that Dukakis would not make a good commander-in-chief, and Dukakis in the tank remains shorthand for backfired public relations outings. Although he had served in the United States Army, Dukakis was widely mocked by his opponents for what they characterize as martial posturing and a silly image. That's from Wikipedia. <laughs> it doesn't always work. Uh, before we move on to the Hitler card, is any questions on transfer? Pretty, uh, having just come from guilt by association, pretty easy to understand. They're just kind of same opposite sides of the same coin. This one I like to call the Hitler or the Nazi card, or reductio ad Hitlerum, or argument ad Hitlerum, and you, you hear this often, and especially as uh, Gail, uh, you brought up the. The Godwin's Law. Can you explain the Godwin's Law? Hold on. <laughs> Can I put you on the spot? <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. But <laughs> My understanding of the Godwin's Law is the first one to resort to Hitler actually loses the argument, and I, that's my understanding of, okay. of that. Well, I think they said that the longer you're on a, uh, a social media discussion, the closer the odds get to 100% that Hitler will come up in the discussion. And that's true. I can tell you for sure. <laughs> but 
We see this in theology all the time, and I call that the Pharisee card. It's, it's pretty much the same thing. It's, rather than pointing to Hitler, you're point, pointing to the Pharisees. And uh, that's why I've got a P card there. That's the Pharisee card. <laughs> but that rounds out our association fallacies. Uh, there was just three of them. And uh, so next up we have false assumptions, and that's where we'll spend the rest of our session today is false assumptions. And I'm sorry I didn't get all of the uh, slides to Christy, so they didn't get printed, so you have to use the back of your notes uh, for uh, false assumptions. To start off with uh, the false assumptions, we have circular reasoning, and I'm sure you're all uh, at least somewhat aware of how circular reasoning works, where you, you engage in a line of reasoning that starts at one point and then eventually ends up at that same point. And we see that in the uh, evolution-creation debate a lot. You've got uh, geologists will say that they date their rock layers based on what the biologists said the age of the fossils in those rocks are. And then if you go to the biologists, they'll say, oh, we date the, those fossils based on what rock layers they're in. We've got Dilbert here. Dilbert says, we know that mass creates gravity because dense planets have more gravity. And so Dogbert asks, well, how do, we know that, how do we know which planets are more dense? He says, well, they have more gravity. Well, that's circular reasoning. He says, I prefer to think of it as no loose ends. <laughs> so the next fallacy, this is going to be, some people call this one the same fallacy. If, if you're looking through your materials, uh, researching it online, they'll, they'll lump them together. I, I like to separate them. It's a little bit easier to understand them when you separate them. And this is begging the question. And begging a question is making a statement where you assume the final conclusion. You don't, you don't assert the final conclusion, you assume it. And some, some examples we have here from that same creation-evolution debate. The Bible cannot be true because it contains miracles, and miracles violate the laws of nature. So he's assuming that, we're, that the universe is purely naturalistic. And, and then... Uh, going with his argumentation based on that alone. Uh, it makes no sense to deny evolution. It's a well-established fact of nature. He's begging the question. He's, he's assuming his assumptions bring him to circular reasoning. Now, Christians will use this one. The Bible must be the word of God because it says it's the word of God, and what it says must be true because God cannot lie. Now, I believe those things. I believe the Bible is the word of God, and I believe that God cannot lie, but this line of reasoning is fallacious. And we know that evolution is true because we are here. <laughs> I, that, it gets said. People say it, and it, it's crazy. Now, some of those examples I got from uh, an article on Answers in Genesis, and if you go to that link there, you probably can't see it on the slide, um, ezmin.us, that's easy, like Echo Zoe Ministries, ezmin.us slash beg the queue. That'll forward you onto that article. It's a good article. Uh, by jo Dr. Jason Lyle of Answers in Genesis. And, and another example, he was leading an as astronomy observation session with the general public. And during this session, he asked a four-year-old boy if the boy believed in alien spaceships. The boy said he did. So Dr. Lyle asked, why, why do you believe in alien spaceships? And the boy replied, well, how else would the aliens get here? <laughs> so... <laughs> so. When we get into formal logic, uh, 
Eric's going to teach us some, some deductive reasoning and, and syllogisms. And one that appears to beg the question but is actually valid logic would be this. Without logic, we cannot formulate a valid argument. We can make valid arguments. Therefore, there must be laws of logic. And the reason why this is valid is because it's not arbitrary. The laws of logic are self-evident. So. Yeah, Andy, this is really good. Um, you know, I was just thinking about it. With the begging the question, the issue is, again, you're asserting, or a person who would commit such a fallacy, they're really having two conclusions. An argument, technically, mm -hmm. uh, a well-constructed argument will have a premise mm -hmm. that is the reason for the belief. So an argument has a conclusion that is based on premises. Yep. But the problem arises in the begging of the question is when the conclusion is really just asserted in the premise. So you have right. a conclusion. Or you have a hidden premise. Exactly. You've got two premises and one of them are hidden. So, and that's important to remember. So the definition of an argument is simply giving reasons for your conclusion. What Andy's pointing out here is they're not giving any reasons for the conclusion. Mm -hmm. They're simply just asserting the conclusion in an, another way in the premise. Yeah. So that, that's, the, I don't know if that helps either, but. It, yeah, and the, why I like, some people put these together with circular reasoning, and I like to break them up because this is more subtle. Yeah. And you'll, you'll hear about circular, circular reasoning, usually if you follow it back and give it some thought, you'll spot it. I mean, the whole idea that, that denser planets have more gravity and we know which ones are denser because they have more gravity, I mean, that's kind of an obvious circular reasoning. But begging the question is a lot of times much, much more subtle. You have to really think about the fact that, well, he's starting with his final conclusion as part of his hidden premise in order to make his point. And we'll get to another one later called a loaded question. And we'll see the difference between a begging the question and loading the question. Loaded question is that begging the question is, is not actually asking a question. It's, it's stating a statement that causes you to ask the question. Whereas a loaded question is kind of circular reasoning or begging the question in the form of a question. But we'll get to that before the end of the day today. Equivocation. Now, this is a, this is a big one. Um, taking two or more uses of a word, you know, the, a, a word might have multiple meanings, and you juxtapose those two as if they're the same meaning. And you kind of, it, it can be, a lot of times it's deceptive, and it's used intentionally deceptively. You'll take, um, you know, and maybe Eric's got examples of, uh, of equivocation, but. Uh, let me give you a common one. Um, when I would talk to, I was a, a Calvinist, I would say, or a person who believes in the doctrine of election when I was an airline pilot. But there was a flight attendant I would fly with, and she was very charismatic, and she would always talk about being born again. Well, I believe in being born again as well, but we had different definitions. Her being born again meant she had the power in order to come to Christ, but my being born again from John 3 means that we were regenerated by the Spirit, enabling us to believe. And so you see we're both using the term born again, but there's a form of equivocation. We're talking about the term in different ways. And in a real sense, a lot of the cults, they thrive on equivocation. Right. They'll talk about faith, they'll talk about Jesus, but remember what Paul warns about in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I fear that you're going to fall for a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. That fits this equivocation fallacy really well. Yes, they have a Jesus, but it's not the one of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we want to be always very careful about distinctions. How many times have you heard Bob 
either in a message or in his writings, talk about category mistakes. And that often has to do with equivocation. And so right. we always want to be careful that we're defining the term um, and understanding how we understand like a, a term like faith versus someone else. That's the key. Yeah. And you see my examples I took from Wikipedia. Margarine is better than nothing. That's, nothing's better than butter, therefore margarine's better than butter. <laughs> That's a misuse of the transitive property. <laughs> uh, the word of faith of movement will equivocate over the word faith. You know, faith is simply trust rather, but they use it as a force. If you have enough faith, you can actually create with your words. Um, one that we hear more close to home would be there's power in the blood. You know, the, that statement is a metaphor. The blood represents the sacrificial atoning uh, death of Christ on the cross. And there's, that's where the power is. The power isn't literally in the liquid that came out of his veins. Bob? Well, as you were talking, Eric, you remind me of the radio show we just did. Yeah. Um, we were talking about faith alone, yeah. citing Luther and his dispute with Rome. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And so we got into this issue that we found in Luther. Luther's dispute was Ro Roman Catholicism says, we believe in faith and we believe in salvation by faith. Faith formed by love. Remember that discussion? Just finished editing it yesterday. Well, what, what Luther does with that, so they say, no, it has to be faith formed by love or it's not real faith. Well, what Luther did was he went to the New Testament and the Old where the command to love is said to be the uh, summary of the whole law. Mm -hmm. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Well, if you can do that, prior to faith, then you're saved by law. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so there's equivocation going on here. They use faith, but you have to be able to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbor as yourself first, and then you form your faith. So Luther picked up on that, and he was debating the so-called sophists. And Eric and I had a great time talking about that on the radio. It's a logical fallacy. The Bible defines faith as a, a, a gift from God mm -hmm. in Ephesians 2, and it's saving outside of law. It's not faith plus law, and it's not faith from law, but it's faith apart from law. And it gave us a chance to do that. But again, you have the equivocation going on. Yeah. And Eric mentioned that uh, the cults engage in this. And perhaps the worst one that I'm aware of is the Mormons. If you have a Mormon show up at your door, and they're going to present, they're going to present Mormonism as just another denomination of Christianity, and they're going to walk you through all kinds of things they believe, but they're going to be equivocating on nearly every, if not every, term they use: yep. faith, atonement, Trinity, uh, sacrifice, uh, everything you can think of as a theological term that we hold dear. They'll have a different meaning for it, and they know they have a different meaning for it. But they are counting on the fact that you don't know that they're using a different meaning. Exactly. Good so I mentioned a loaded question uh, with begging the question. A loaded question presumes a conclusion, puts the person being asked in a tricky situation whereby no matter how they answer, they will appear to forfeit ground in the debate. Uh, you'll see this a lot by you know, Bill O'Reilly and your Peers Morgan. Uh, you know, those hard-hitting 
uh, opinion journalists on cable news. Uh, they all, at some point in time, you'll see them use it. And I have an example there. This, the bottom example was taken directly from Piers Morgan. Uh, they were doing a debate on same-sex marriage. And he was debating with uh, Ryan Anderson of the Heritage Foundation. And he just asked, where in the Constitution does it say that same-sex marriage, same-sex couples can't get married? So he's, he's loading it up. He's putting, you know, it's really beside the point whether it's in the Constitution or not. It's, and he's putting his 21st century values in the, into the heads of, of 18th century politicians when he, he brings that question up. But uh, a, a classic example you've probably all heard at some point in your life is, have you stopped beating your wife? <laughs> kind of presuming that you beat her in the first place. <laughs> so the, res the way to respond to this fallacy is to address the underlying faulty presupposition that motivates it. Don't ever grant that presupposition. Don't grant you know, the question if you beat your wife don't grant that that was ever even on the table. This one I had on the list as two fallacies, but I also described in the introduction that they, they really go hand in hand. They're, they're opposite fallacies, and so it, it makes a lot of sense to put them together. Uh, composition and division. Composition falsely assumes that what's true of the parts is also true of the whole. And conversely, division says what's true of the whole is also true of the parts. This is kind of not the best example. I got this from the uh, fa uh, Fallacy Friday podcast that was in my sources. But every track on a CD is 10 minutes long. So therefore, the entire CD is 10 minutes long. Well, obviously, that's not true. Uh, or a division, a particular brick wall is fragile. Therefore, the bricks that make up the wall are fragile. Also, Faulty logic. Those bricks can be as hard as diamonds, but the mortar in between them would be weak, and that's why you'd have a, a fragile wall. Common example that we have in composition is that, that Christians will use is the cosmological argument for the existence of God. It's said that everything in the universe has a beginning, therefore the universe itself had to have a beginning. Again, maybe it did, and, and I believe it did, but that line of reasoning is to commit the composition fallacy. Bob, you look like you got something to say. There's other ways to, the one you just mentioned, there's other ways to attack that issue, such as the second law of thermodynamics. And exactly. If, if there was no beginning, then everything would be, then the universe would be infinitely old, and if it was infinitely old, it would already have died of heat death. Yeah. We don't need false arguments to help us as Christians. That I mentioned that I think last week. It just every time you throw a fallacy out there, thinking you help your case, you just convince some other atheist to stay an atheist. Yeah, because they're smart enough to recognize they'll see false right. arguments. They'll commit them too, but they'll see them when you commit them. So, Eric, you look like no, no? oh sorry. <laughs> All right. I just have a few left, so. Please, uh, false dichotomy, uh, and this one goes hand in hand with the next one we'll have of the middle ground fallacy. False dichotomy is limiting you to two options when really there are, there are multiple. There might be three or four or thousands of options, but you get limited to two. And 
again, I use some political examples. It's not just limited to politics, but anarchy versus totalitarianism, Republican versus Democrat, Pelagianism versus hyper-Calvinism is a big one in the, in the church. You know, it's... People will uh, almost craft that, that debate as though if you are not uh, completely hyper-Calvinist, you're not, you know, God... We're not robots and automatons, then you must be a Pelagian and vice versa. If you, if you don't see complete and total, utter free will, you must be a hyper-Calvinist. Uh, that would be a, a false dichotomy. And then one right out of Scripture says, the, his, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither this man nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him, from John 9. Then the, the middle ground is, like I said, it's just the opposite of that. It says that um, this one will say that, that there are many options when really they're just two. And when we get to formal logic, Eric's going to talk about the law of excluded middle. And that's kind of the formal side of the same issue. Uh, so like a wife wants a baby, husband doesn't want a baby, and a mediator comes in and says, okay, we'll have half a baby. Obviously, that's not going to work. Uh, another middle ground fallacy would be to say that the claim of all religions have grains of truth and all paths lead to, lead to God. Well, that's, that's a middle ground fallacy because they're, they're mutually exclusive. So they're either true or they're not true. They're not partially true. Eric? Yeah, Andy, you know, um, alongside this, we're going to be learning how to put our opponents in a dilemma and a dilemma is where you only have two options. Neither of them is very attractive. But this ties in very nicely with when you're putting your opponent in a debate in a dilemma, you want to be very careful to research that there's not a third option because that's the one of the ways to get out of a dilemma is to go between the horns, and we'll talk about how to get out of a dilemma. Yep. But there really are what we would call binary uh, issues in life. For instance... When you look at Matthew 25, there really are only the sheep and the goats. At the end of the day, you're either saved or you're lost. Okay, so that would be a proper dilemma to put someone in. Um, we're going to put a dilemma uh, upon an atheist in which they're going to be either having to deny a law of logic to say that the universe could self-create itself, or they're going to have to deny a law of science that the universe is eternal. Well, neither of those are attractive because either they're unscientific or they're irrational. And that's very powerful because there's really no third option for them. Those are the only two possibility, possibilities without a creator. So when we're looking for, um, and we're looking through these informal fallacies, realize there are times when there is no middle ground. There's either or, and that's mm -hmm. what we're looking for to put our opponent in. We want to say, look, there are no third options. This is the real issue. It's either this or it's that. But if there is a third option, they will find it and they'll use it against you. So. Yeah. Yeah. When I was debating Doug Paget, he accused me of binary reductionism, which is a fancy way of saying well, I was claiming either or when, in fact, there really was a third option. But what Paget didn't do is explain where the third option was. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, in some forms of, of debate or discussion, by nature, there's no third option. In other words, when we talk about the existence of something, Either something exists or does not exist. 
-hmm. Okay, you can't sort of exist. If you sort of exist, you do exist. Right. And one of the, and so I reconstructed the debate when I wrote a book about this, just one of the chapters, um, and pointed out that I had just simply made a statement about existence and Paget called it binary reductionism, but it is not that, because mm -hmm. it's a statement about existence. Either God exists or he does not exist. That's a valid uh, either or, disjunctive syllogism is mm -hmm. called. But if there is a third option, or a fourth or a fifth, we gotta be careful about our claims because they can beat us with that. Always take the, the weak, false, illogical arguments out of your material, if mm -hmm. you can find them. Take it out, you don't need it. Mm -hmm. And if you need something illogical to support your position, you better think carefully about whether you're even teaching the truth. Right. The truth will, doesn't depend on logical fallacies ever. Yep. I like to listen to RefNet from time to time during the day. And RefNet is an online radio station by Ligonier, uh, R.C. Sproul's ministry. And they'll play all kinds of great radio. It'll be John MacArthur and and R.C. Sproul and Alistair Begg and you know, a lot of really solid guys. But in between the shows, they'll play little clips. They'll, they'll pull out of R.C. Sproul's teaching and just play a little 30-second clip. And one that they like to play often that I like that illustrates this middle ground fallacy is this, uh, he, he's talking about what he heard on the radio. Someone saying, this secular scientist saying that millions of years ago, the universe exploded into being. <laughs> well, how does something explode into being? It has to exist in order to create itself. It's kind of like Eric was saying. It's, it's kind of a, and Eric, you know, R.C. Sproul, if you've listened to him, it's, it's got a, kind of a, a fun way of presenting that. <laughs> Etymology fallacy is a big one. Here. Uh, uh, Paul, do you want to answer? Oh, I'm sorry. Roger? Sproul on, is with Ben Stein on a two 15-minute clips on YouTube talking about creation. Oh, yeah? And he just destroys his <laughs> scientific argument. I'll have to look for that. Those two guys together must be very entertaining. <laughs> I, I think it's instructive when people don't want a valid argument to even be explained, so they kick them out of a university or kick them. We don't want to silence you because we cannot correct you. Some years ago, Stein actually had a, a movie release called yeah, Expelled. Expelled yeah. And it was just pointing out that people that did not believe in evolution are expelled. You can't, we're not going to refute your argument. We're just going to punish you for having it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you see that in a mass, it's almost like mass deception. In my opinion, such a mass deception exists now that I see every day in the newspaper. I look at the weather on the back page of the B section, always extolling the reality global of global warming based on carbon. So now carbon dioxide is considered an air pollutant, mm -hmm. even though it is not. So there's the big lie. Carbon dioxide is air pollution, which it never became that until about 20 years ago. All right. When I was studying science as a young man at Iowa State, the goal of the combustion of hydrocarbons was that you'd have a pure burn 
where you maximize the energy, minimize the pollution, like unburned hydrocarbons, sul oxides of sulfur, oxides of nitrogen. Mm -hmm. If you could get a very pure, and that's what a catalytic converter does, burn, what you put out are two things, carbon dioxide and water. Okay, carbon dioxide was created by God as a natural and necessary and important part of our Ecosystem. atmosphere mm -hmm. used by plants. It's not toxic to humans till it gets to 5,000 parts per million. It's at 300 and something. Okay, but they're saying carbon dioxide is air pollution. Now it's hopeless. You can't burn a fire. You can't breathe. You can't use natural gas. You can't use diesel. You can't use gasoline. You can't do anything. You can't have a race. Most of us have to die. Your car puts out CO2, but so does a horse. And you can't do any. So this yeah. is the leap. Carbon dioxide is air pollution. No, it is not. Second leap. It causes the atmosphere to get um, warm because it's a, it's a um, greenhouse gas. I wrote an article about this. Greenhouses are notoriously short of carbon dioxide because all the greenage in there absorbs it. Yep. So oftentimes they have to run a propane burner and pipe carbon dioxide in. So you have your greenhouse. What is a greenhouse gas is water vapor. What probably does cause warming is water vapor. And the uh, fallacious people who are deceiving the entire human race don't want to talk about water vapor, which is just as much a part of the burning of a hydrocarbon as carbon dioxide is. So now, well, actually, it's more. They don't want to talk about it because how can you vilify water? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, yeah. so here we have the entire human race being deceived from a fallacy. And it's hard, I think, well, i got to stick with the gospel. I want to write about this. <laughs> I did write one article. Mm -hmm. This is so stupid that a sophomore... And college knows that it's wrong. Who are all these brilliant scientists out there who are deceived? Yeah. Uh, moving on to etymology. Uh, this is similar to equivocation, but the, what happens is the meaning of the words changes. It's not that we have a word that has multiple meanings in our current usage. It's that the, the word itself has changed over time. And you're pointing to the current meaning. And that's the most common is you'll point to the current meaning and say, well, that's what was meant when it was written, whether it be the scriptures or the Constitution or you know, some document that is old enough that the words have changed since it was written. And I give two examples out of the Constitution, and that being the word militia, which in the 18th century meant all able-bodied male citizens, even though today the word militia generally means either a National Guard or a paramilitary organization. And then the word regulate, which you find in the Commerce Clause, that uh, the Congress will be able to regulate commerce between the states. In the 18th century, that meant to make it regular, make it uniform. And to now, now today, it means to enact restrictions. The difference being that in the 18th century, they didn't want to have uh, like interstate tariffs. They didn't want New York putting a tariff on, on Pennsylvania steel or, or Pennsylvania putting tariffs on New York corn. They wanted the goods and services to flee, flow freely between the states. And so they said the Congress should have the right to, to make that regular, to be able to ensure that goods and services flow freely between the states. But these days, the Commerce Clause means that Congress has the right to do just about anything.
Uh, next one we have is the, the fallacy fallacy. But anybody, everybody understand the etymology fallacy before we move on to that? You see that in scripture, you know, people arguing scripture all the time. I'm sure Bob and Eric can point to that where the word has changed in the Bible since the, since the word was used in the Bible. Uh, the word love. <laughs> I mean, the word love has changed. It almost doesn't even resemble, you know, the four different Greek words that, that meant love anymore. And, but, uh, argument from fallacy, and this is one that we've, we've really been trying to illustrate throughout this is that you spot a fallacy in an argument. It's not necessarily true that because a fallacy was used, their conclusion was wrong. Oftentimes, the conclusion's right. And I point to the, like the cosmological argument that I used in the previous example, that I agree with the fact that the universe was created. I, 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 I agree with the, uh, the fact that it's not eternal. But to say that because the universe, because everything in the universe had a creator, or was created, that therefore the universe itself was created, would be to commit the fallacy fallacy. Does this all make sense? <laughs> Brian, you got a question. Well, I don't have a question other than the fact that you asked if it does all make sense, and I'm working through that. Oh, okay. <laughs> How can I help you work through that? Okay. <laughs> Basically, what I'm. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, basically, my point is just because somebody commits a fallacy doesn't mean that what they're trying to argue is wrong. The ultimate conclusion of what they're trying to argue isn't necessarily wrong. And to dismiss that what their ultimate conclusion is because you spotted a fallacy in their argumentation. That would be to commit this fallacy. Uh, and I, I've, tr I've tried to give examples of how Christians commit fallacies in their argumentation, like arguing for the word of God or arguing for the creation of the universe. That atheists will use that against us and say, well, that's a fallacy, how you're constructing that. And so therefore, God doesn't exist or the Bible isn't true. So they're committing the fallacy fallacy in that case. Eric? See, yeah, Andy, one thing that might help with um, the thing about when we're constructing an argument, again, we're, we're coming up with reasons for the basis of our conclusion. But what Andy is saying is, let's say our reasons are structured in a faulty way. They're invalid. Our conclusion could still be correct or true. It's just that they didn't, the conclusion doesn't follow from our premise. Yeah. So remember, ultimately, we as, I mean, this is, the truth, it doesn't matter if we're evangelicals. I was going to say we as evangelicals believe it, but it doesn't matter even if we're evangelicals. The correspondence theory of truth says that something is true if, it, if the proposition corresponds to reality. Okay, so if I say I have a propositional statement, I make, I have $5 in my pocket, and I open my pocket, and sure enough, there's $5 in it, that's true because it corresponded to reality. So the conclusion being true depends on whether it corresponds to reality, okay? What Andy's trying to help us do is to say we have to be able to structure our arguments in a valid way. Oftentimes people will come to a faulty conclusion that doesn't correspond to reality because they have faulty premises. But he's just mm -hmm. saying it's not necessarily the case that just because you have a faulty premise, your conclusion doesn't line up with reality. That's the point. I hope right. that helps. Yep. Pardon. And that's... That was the last fallacy I have for today.
done a few minutes early, but if you've got any other comments. I'm going to pick up on what Eric was talking about. Um, it behooves us to use sound reason. Okay, and the postmodern issue is attacking reason. That's right. Okay, or they attack correspondence, quote, theory of truth, as if there's some other way to know something, uh, attacking even the validity of studying logic, because they don't want that. Mm -hmm. And both of us experienced that at various, you know, at seminary, and that's how I met you, was to go to... Uh, stand up against that at a seminary. Why is that important? Uh, because, as we've said, in Scripture, implications and applications are logically connected to the text. And that's not something that's an important test for truth in what I would call judging prophecy. So if someone gets up and makes a prophecy, in other words, it's not just the scripture, or the meaning of scripture, but a, a supposed implication or application, that can be judged to be true or false. Take John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he said his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So mm -hmm. somebody can say, and I've seen this happen in a debate one time, well, God is a God of love. God loved everybody and sent his Son, well, I would affirm that. Therefore, we can't believe that he really means that people perish. That would not be loving. So since God is a loving God, he can't possibly send anyone to hell. So therefore, the doctrine of hell is false, based on John 3.16. But that, I would judge that to be a false prophecy. Mm-hmm. And the biblical definition of agape love is not that God says there's no hell. Okay, they're importing that in there. It's not a premise of the biblical writers. And if you want to prove that, you stay in John 3 and go later. What is it? 30? Where's that one? Yeah. Uh, the one who abides under the wrath of God. Yeah. So I grew, up on, I grew up in a liberal church, and I'll admit that's influenced me. I really don't have any... Uh, warm feelings toward li theological liberalism, okay? It's very harmful. I'd rather be told the truth straight up than given some idea that sounds warm and fuzzy and what we might want to hear, but it's not really biblical. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the ones that was the hallmark of liberalism, was that God's love trumps all of his other attributes. And, and then you go to some conclusion that there can't be a hell or it can't be exclusive to Christianity uh, that all paths must lead to God and so on so then you end up with your desired conclusion it's kind of begging the question mm -hmm. and then you play around with scripture in the process mm -hmm. that was very frustrating about debating emergence they do that continually and I thought when I was doing my research that this is the way it is, and now I know that it is. They're using scripture just to confuse us. They don't really believe in the categories of the scripture, but they're confusing us like a red herring by bringing out Bible verses. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're uh, a few minutes left. Does anybody have questions about anything we talked about today?
or last week even. How can a person be saved without understanding who God is? I mean, specifically who God is. To camp out on the fact that God is love to the exclusion of all other attributes of God, how can you be saved? Because you wouldn't understand the essence of who God is. I mean, blessed is a man who understands. Where is that? Um, is that Jeremiah 9? Um, blessed talks about, Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you don't understand who God is, how could you be saved if you haven't been taught who God is? You know, in all of his attributes, not just love, but his wrath and his hatred for sin. Yeah, save it becomes vacuous, a vacuous term, because there's nothing to be saved from. The word in the Greek, sozo, means rescued from serious peril. So as Eric says a lot of times in his sermons, you can't understand the good news unless you understand the bad news. Okay? And so in the church where I grew up, there was never any bad news, and even my mom... Uh, who would tend to think that way, said, well, the pastor kind of looks at life through rose-colored glasses. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sonia? Maybe you can come far away over here. (laughs) Meet in the middle. Amen. You know, I was just going to say I love logic, and I'm one of those people that it actually is a natural thing. Praise God that I, I love to think critically, um, and I know not everybody loves to think critically, but um, I teach my everybody kids. Everybody here likes to think critically. Well, <laughs> probably true, and that's actually what I was going to say is salvation is a miracle, mm-hmm. and we aren't going to argue people into the kingdom, and debate is fun. I love debate. It's fun for me, but <laughs> not for everybody, and I don't think, I think what's most important is that we think critically for ourselves. We are saved by God's grace, and it's a miracle that we're mm-hmm. saved. And anybody who gets saved hearing the gospel, it's a miracle because God lifted the veil, and they're saved. The equivocation thing, too, I was just, as I was thinking that, I was thinking sometimes we commit a fallacy on the flip side of that. We hear a word, and it's a trigger for us. Mm-hmm. And we go, well, you're obviously bad because you said meditation. <laughs> you know, And that, of course... <laughs> is not true either. And so we have to ask good questions. Yeah. And we have to example. be thinkers just all the way through, you know, because God is love, but God is truth, and God is holy, and God is righteous, and all of those things. But anyway, I, we have to be, because we are critical thinkers. I think this church is really critical thinkers. <laughs> we, are, we are thinkers. So we have to be careful on the other side, too. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Sonia. That was very good. Yeah. That's why I've never participated in a blog. The whole time I've been in ministry, never a blog. I'm not saying that's a moral quality yeah. of mine. It's just a, uh, my idea. You know, we did a create trouble. a church blog section. Yeah, people have Eric a blog, but that's fine. <laughs> the reason for Clearly that, going way knowledge. back to when this technology came true, is mm-hmm. I don't want anything published that hasn't been checked for logic by somebody smarter than me. Uh, in other words, once you you may be up too late and didn't get a nap or whatever, and you're sitting here on this blog, <laughs> there it goes to the whole world. <laughs> Nobody checked it. Yeah. They're going to take that. That's the stick. Beat, 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 pound, pound, pound. Yeah. If I'm going to get pounded, I'd rather get pounded for the truth than some dumb thing I said. <laughs> 
Sonia, I loved your comments. I just want to address one thing. You had mentioned uh, just about reason and the fact that people do come to the kingdom, and it is absolutely a miracle, regeneration by God alone. But remember, he does use means as well. You know, how will they, how will they hear unless someone preaches? And blessed are the feet of those who bring good tidings. And what's interesting is that God uses the argumentation that we deliver and he uses the words of God, of course, to regenerate and to save. Um, we have a wonderful example of that. I thought, Bob, you'd want to share that gal that came to faith as a result of dealing with Isaiah and Sennacherib's prism, that gal that you had met kind of oh, yeah. through. Uh, maybe share that. It's a wonderful testimony about how God uses reason. Yeah, I was uh, getting my medical treatment, and I ran into a solid Christian who saw me doing all this work with the Greek and all that and said, well, could you help me? I want to witness to somebody that's a friend of mine who's really hostile or, you know, against Christianity. I wouldn't say hostile. It's a loaded term. And I said, sure. And so send the objections to Christianity. Well, I got them. Eric, I gave a couple to Eric, and I took three or four of them. And we answered all every objection uh, using the best material that we had. And the assumption of this person was that Christianity is just based on emotion and religious affiliation. There's no real evidence for it. So what we did was laid out the evidence, and then when a question comes back, answer it. When it comes back, answer it. And continually going to the evidence. And the last place we went was to Isaiah 53. Mm. And I shared a, a sermon I'd done on that that just laid out evidence. Well, the last time that particular nurse was there and helping with my infusion, she said that her friend has rejected the atheistic agnostic material and come over to Christianity Amen. based on giving. Because there are a lot of people that assume there are no answers because the average Christian can't give them any. Right. And God. I'm not saying that to be hyper-pious or better than anybody. But it is good if some Christians can actually give those answers. Because if we have the truth, we have the evidence, and we have the answers, it's pretty foolish to just appeal to emotion and, well, if you're a good person, then you should be a Christian. That's not a very adequate answer. So we don't, why use circular reasoning when you don't need to? You, don't, you shouldn't use it anyhow, but why do it? Because we do. Mm -hmm. The Sennacherib prism is... Very, very old, solid evidence that what the Bible says actually happened in time and space and is confirmed by history outside of itself. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks, Bob. And uh, we'll wrap up with that. Next week, we'll talk, we'll finish off our logical fallacies with statistical fallacies and propaganda. And uh, don't let the propaganda fool you. Uh, Sorry, Mike. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt that. I don't have a question. If, if you're done, that's fine. I just I have a request. Okay. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, propaganda uh, is one of those words that, that 